you should not be experimenting if you are afraid. Like you need to get over that fear before you start down this path. And that is like a step for people. And I think that's just something that the whole mindset thing isn't super well understood because there aren't really any other substances that are highly impacted by mindset. Obviously, that's not a perfect statement, but just generally speaking, mindset has a much bigger effect on your experience with psychedelics than it does other substances. On this episode, we're speaking with Parker Olson, founder of Forage, about his 18-month food experiment that led him to weaving functional mushrooms into his diet, how his business idea spontaneously came to him at a networking event, why he slept in a tent for two years, what the future of functional food looks like, and more. My name is Parker. I'm the founder of Forage where we make nutrition for your noggin or more recently coined noggin nutrition is something we are flirting with. Nice. That sounds like a trademark waiting to happen right there. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. So thanks for popping on. I'm excited to chat and dig a little bit deeper into your story. But one thing that intrigued me when I was poking around and doing a little research is I noticed that your current journey seemed to start when you decided to do a nutrition experiment on yourself, like your Tim Ferriss or something like that, writing a book. <laughs> so I'm curious, what yeah, I, what inspired uh, that experiment? It's funny you say that. I definitely used to be a huge Tim Ferriss nerd, like the only podcast I would listen to. And probably I'm sort of like a closet biohacker a little bit. I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit. But yeah, yeah, I was never into food, wasn't really into nutrition. And I just, I still remember I was in college. My oldest brother was living in Minneapolis at the time. And I was at school at the University of Minnesota. And we were going to the gym. And he was telling me that he was trying this new thing that he had heard about called the Whole30 Diet. Have you heard of this? I assume it's like, I feel like it's pretty mainstream. So it's it's basically, it's a specific type of diet. You cut out processed foods, grains, sugars, et cetera. And he was talking about how you are supposed to get something that's called the tiger blood. Have you heard about this? <laughs> I don't know if I know about that other than what was it, Charlie oh. Sheen going off about tiger blood for a little while when he was <laughs> going off. Yeah, his probably mocking it. Yeah. So the tiger blood, which he claims that he got and tiger blood is, you know, if you go into Reddit and you search tiger blood, basically like your body is supposedly operating at maximum efficiency and you basically like requires less sleep. Like you like all your senses are sort of impacted and elevated. So like, you know, you notice like better eye vision, you're like stronger, you're sort of quicker minded. And I was kind of intrigued and, you know, I'm still a junior in college, poor, wasn't necessarily the healthiest person, but really like eating was very transactional to me, just trying to like eat as quickly and as cheaply as possible until once I graduated college and everybody was kind of talking about vegan, that sort of diet. And and I didn't totally get it. I understood like the environmental concerns. Like I know we talk a lot environmentally, but I didn't understand people who were, that wasn't the use case. They were vegan just because they wanted to be vegan. So I decided that I would try it. If there's a cohort of people doing this, like I, I kind of just want to understand why. And it was sort of inspired by like what my brother told me of like, oh, I did this diet and I saw this effect. So I thought, okay, it makes enough sense. So for 30 days, I went vegan and I was kind of just documenting how I felt. And the first really, it was the first 17 days was really like what I found to be like the break point 
were just like kind of tough. Like you had cravings. It wasn't like a perfect routine yet. I didn't like love the food. I was often hungry. I was almost like having like withdrawals from things that I couldn't be consuming. And then right around after that 17 day mark and, and until the 30 day mark, like I felt really, I felt good. I definitely noticed a difference in how I felt and I kind of liked it. Like it was sort of fun, sort of just this like daily challenge in a way. So, you know, no surprise, Gage, you eat well and I was eating clean vegan. So I wasn't just eating crap and you feel good, right? It's not that surprising. So anyways, I decided I would do it again. And that turned into 18 months of individual, like 30 day, for the first 12, it was nutritional regimens strictly. And then after 12 months, I kind of experimented with like more lifestyle, like 30 day component. So that was sort of like the opening journey of, you know, myself founding a health food company. Wow. Okay. So it started off with 30 days. And first off, you said you went vegan, but like clean vegan. So were you on a specific elimination diet or something like that? Like not just vegan, but also avoiding certain potential harmful vegetables or other kind of plants like nightshades, et cetera? No, no, no. I was just like, trying to be vegan and, you know, and just trying to eat like good food. I wasn't just going to go buy like vegan crap yeah. snacks okay. and just like live just off quali- of those. Just quality was vegan. To, like really okay. like, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. And then that experiment turned into an 18-month experiment. So obviously you just mentioned that they were like little micro experiments within. So did you have like a system in there where you were systematically trying introducing different things back into your diet each month or were you going deeper into the veganism and just do like eating fruit only or something like that well so it's i like that you bring that up because i'm not the brightest guy in the room gage Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm just gonna throw myself into it and then figure out how to tread water typically and so no i wasn't systematically or very thoughtful about switching diets And and that was a big takeaway for me was so i went from being vegan And then I went and tried the keto diet immediately after. And the first 14 to 17 days of that were like pretty miserable. And I noticed that like every month, like the first week or two was definitely, you know, pretty challenging. And like oftentimes I wouldn't feel very good or would have really low energy or like loose stool until my body adjusted. And that was like definitely a takeaway for me, you know, which was find a nutritional regimen where you're going to feel good. And you can essentially like sustain it, like doing something for 30 days or 45 days or two months and then, and then reverting, like your whole body biochemistry shifts around and, and you just feel horrible. So that was definitely a takeaway for me. I probably could have done it in a more, in a smarter manner, but I wasn't that clever, Gage. Gotcha. And I know part of this journey was your discovery of mushrooms as well and the functionality of mushrooms. And I think I saw in your LinkedIn profile that you were at a certain period of time on the Puget Sound Mycology or Mycological Society board. So did you find mushrooms through this journey, just get really interested and then join that board? Or were you already somehow interested in mushrooms and in that board role? Yeah. Like, What were you doing on that board? Yeah, that's right. So after these like kind of 12 months of like strict, like Atkins diet, right? Like standard diets, I sort of started to experiment elsewise and something i'd start to see and read a lot about were like it was like mushroom coffee right this was back in 2018 20 i think it was 2018 and my background in education i double majored in neuroscience and finance so i I have a background in neuroscience and 
uh, for an entire year during my college education, we spent just studying like what different drugs do to the brain and basically like learned what psychedelics do on a fundamental level. And the only reason I bring that up is to say like, I have an understanding that mushrooms can impact how you're feeling and, and your nervous system on a pretty fundamental level. And so when I started to hear about these other types of mushrooms that are totally legal and, and considered functional or, or medicinal and had been used for thousands of years in ancient Chinese medicine, I was curious because I it made, it made sense to me in my mind. So for one month, I went off of like all other supplementation, like vitamins. I wasn't drinking caffeine and I just drank basically mushroom teas. So I was just like only supplementing with these mushroom teas. And that month was like one of the best months of how I felt across that 18 month experiment. So yeah, I like kind of went all in and that was eye opening for me. And, and as I was feeling really good during that month, I started to dig into the research and like started to read some of like the studies and get into some of the neuroscience and down to like the biological level and became pretty compelled by really what a lot of these mushrooms can do for you from a health standpoint and a lot of really like low hanging fruit or low hanging, you know, medical concerns that I believe they can really solve or, or really help with kind of across the population. So that was sort of like the intro for me. And then I, you know, went on this, this month journey and after that became really interested in mushrooms. And so I joined the Puget Sound Mycological Society, which is the largest mushroom club or society in the US. And then, yeah, and then I ended up sitting on the board there for uh, close to two years. Wow, that's amazing. So for the mushroom experiment, you said that you ate nothing but mushroom teas, or were you just only drinking mushroom teas, like no caffeine, but did you, you just ate Just only drinking food? mushroom teas. I was, <laughs> I was still eating. Yes. I was okay, eating okay. kind of just like a normal diet. I wasn't trying to like stick to anything extreme. It was just like the only variable I was controlling for was like gotcha. the consumption of mushroom tea. Yeah. Okay. And were you making your own mushroom teas, like just getting dried mushrooms and steeping them yourself? Or was there a brand that you bought? So yeah, for a while I was drinking like mud water, which I feel like it has almost become like commonplace in a lot of ways. They've just spent so many ad dollars. Yeah. Totally. And honestly, I didn't like love that. I don't love the product, like the actual taste of that product, like drinking it every day. So I ended up making my own teas for a while and then kind of towards the end got into sourcing like my own mushrooms. And then I was putting them in my oatmeal in the morning. And so I kind of like transitioned around a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. That explains your first product, which we'll get to in a little bit. But before we get there, can you talk about your kind of role on the board? Like what do you do as a board member yeah. of the Mycological Society? Good question. I was, and I believe I still am. I believe I still hold the youngest board member ever on in the society, which I kind of say tongue in cheek because that group, and as you can imagine, mushroom foraging is kind of an old person sport, I'll say, <laughs> yeah. or, or just traditionally. And so, you know, the board was definitely, you know, composed of people, I think the average age of the board was like upper 60s. And so, yeah, we would meet twice a month. And basically, you know, we were working on strategic initiatives, we would plan that they host a big uh, mushroom show twice a year, Mushroom Mania in the fall, and I forget the name of the spring one. They hold uh, 10 to 15 field trips every single year. So, so there's just some logistical navigation there. And then finally, and, and where I was most intrigued by is, they're actually sitting on, I'll say like a decent amount of capital. And so it was discussing like how to actually deploy their capital. And a lot of member dues for the year are $20. So you kind of wonder like, how do they actually 
collect money. A, they have super low expenses, but they've received in-kind donations of land in the past that I think they've then sold to the state that have opened up like state parks. So yeah, they actually have some kind of cool assets under management. Wow, that's really cool. I wouldn't have guessed that they had owned land. It's, you know, I've been on lots of nonprofit boards. Most of them, all their revenue just comes from membership dollars. The smart ones start having some sort of services or other value add kind of thing that they can charge for to offset membership dollars. So they're not begging for money all the time from sponsors and stuff. But but owning land, that's pretty cool, especially when it's gifted. That's yep. amazing. Actually, I'm on the board <laughs> yeah. of my homeowners association and pretty much the only reason that exists because in our division or in our neighborhood, there's a few, three divisions, I think. The other two divisions, HOAs, completely went away. The reason we still have ours is because the HOA owns property, like land up near the, we call it the park and the beach area because there's these steps that go down to a beach on the bay. And then there's a strip of land that goes along our creek that runs through my kind of backyard area that the HOA owns, which part of why I like this neighborhood is that nobody can touch that land and it'll always stay yeah, kind of pristine nature. Access. Yeah. That's cool. But it's, I think that's like the only reason we exist at this point really is to maintain that land, yeah, yeah, but uh, we're not making money land. off of it, yeah. but it's cool that they were able to get some <laughs> land donations. Yeah. Awesome. So any mushroom hunters out there, go find your mycological society, I guess, and join up. That sounds cool. I'm going to have to actually look into some events myself, considering I'm in Paul Stamen's backyard over here. So may as well check it out. Totally. So with that said, you hinted that part of your mushroom experiment was, you know, starting to weave mushrooms into your food, starting with your breakfast, with your oatmeal or granolas. And then you decided to launch forage somewhere in there. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to launch a company, why you decided to focus on these mushrooms. I think you've hinted at that already. You were impressed by their health benefits, but you know, you still could have done anything. And then why did you start with these specific products? Yeah, all good questions. So yeah, for me, like the kind of the experimentation was just exciting to me. I wasn't super excited by my other job and, you know, I had always been entrepreneurial in the past. I, I have, I've started a couple of like more like solopreneur projects in the past that I've gone through or monetized in some way or sold or gotten stolen from me, which is a whole other, other story. But definitely there was, there was some draw to mushrooms that I was super compelled by. Like I loved mushroom foraging. I love the way that these mushrooms made me feel and so it was something that happened really organically. As I mentioned, I was kind of making my own oatmeal towards the end. And that was because I didn't love like the taste of a lot of the teas. And so I wanted to get it into kind of like a food format, something that I could kind of eat like daily, that would be super healthy and something that I would like really enjoy. Additionally, around that time is when I was starting to train for like a full Ironman. So like six days a week training, like two a days for three of those days. And so for me, it was like I was applying structure around my nutrition of like, okay, I want to eat really clean. I want to eat whole food ingredients. That was a big takeaway for me from my 18 month journey. And I want to get these mushrooms into my diet every day. So I kind of started with oatmeal and I was bringing it into my office. And then I started making granola because it was just a little bit more convenient and it would last. And I started just bringing it into my office and I was asking people to try it. And, you know, at first they were like, this tastes like crap. <laughs> okay, fair enough. 
And, and then I kind of leveled up and my roommate sister was a really talented baker and she was staying with us for a couple months and she ended up like coming up with some legitimate recipes and was like, we're going to level this up. So she kind of helped level up the initial recipes. And then I started bringing them into the office and people were really liking them. And they're like, yeah, this is really good. I can't, can't even taste mushrooms. Like this is super cool. And so, you know, I was like, okay, cool. And was still just making it for my own. And you know, it was kind of just having fun, like experimenting, like, oh, I'll run a little survey and see what responses I get from people in my office. And then I found myself at a startup conference in Oakland and in December of 2018 or in 2019, years fly. And I was having a random conversation and then at those events, everybody wants to ask like, what's your thing you're working on? And I wasn't working on any cool thing. And so I kind of made it up. Like I kind of lied. <laughs> and awesome. I said... I did. I lied. I said that I was making like the first like mushroom based food product or concept or something. And like eight out of 10 people looked at me and were very confused and were wondering if I was trying to sell them drugs. And then there was one or two that were like, oh, that's really cool. And one guy who was an angel investor there was like, that's sick. Like that's going to be huge. Like that market is really going to grow. Like I know a lot about these mushrooms too. And we kind of like nerded out over it for a while. And then he went and brought me over to the guy who held the conference. His name's Sam Parr. Some people may follow him. And, you know, like there were like 15 people like suckling at his teat around him at this networking happy hour. And everyone's just like trying to get his card. And this guy comes in and like cuts everybody off and introduces us. And then I like, he's like, tell him what you're doing. And I told him and Sam was like, oh yeah, like I'm like all in on the mushroom space. Like I think that's going to be huge in like three to 10 years here's my card. And it gave me my card. And everybody was like kind of rattled that it was standing around. <laughs> Everyone was like, what the and hell? So there, I'm working on mushrooms too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so then this angel investor was like, Hey, send me your pitch deck. And I was like, Oh yeah, for sure. I'll send you an <laughs> totally, back. Yeah. Didn't even have a brand. Like didn't even have like a full product. Didn't have anything. But what I did have was PowerPoint skills and the ability to go on Fiverr to hire somebody to make a brand. <laughs> and so that I went home that night found somebody on Fiverr to make a logo, like put together like a pitch deck and sent it to him. And then in the meantime, like while we're discussing and he's sharing it around and he's looking at it, I was like, okay, well, I better start trying to sell the product. I don't know what else to do. So then I went and I started like selling it to local cafes and it kind of spiraled way out of control from there. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. I'm loving this. First off, it sounds like the ultimate fake it till you make it. But like most people, even with that statement, which I've been lately reframing to believe in yourself before you know you can do it, right? That's ultimately what you're doing with fake it till you make it. You're like, I can do this. I don't know it. I'll figure it out. So I'm just going to go out there and act like I have confidence, even though I'm still learning. But for you, it was like a literal fake it. (laughs) Like You didn't have an answer to give, so you kind of made one up, but people loved it enough that it kind of pushed you down that path, which is kind of a cool serendipity there. But one thing I wanted to ask before I did deeper... (laughs) Yeah, totally. But before we dig deeper there, I'm super curious. I think you said it was your sister that helped you kind of reformulate your granola when you were just kind of doing it for your own use. So what was an aha, if it's not some sort of trade secret and you can share it, what was like an aha tweak to your formulation that made it go from crap to tasty? Yeah, it was my roommate's sister and she like does some food science stuff now as well. And we also did some consulting with a food scientist like towards, you know, when we were really starting to like put real product together and I will share it. Like it's not some, I mean, I don't know, maybe my like lawyer or like other people would suggest that I don't talk about it, but that's not my style. 
is we discovered that, and we were really indexing on using whole food ingredients and keeping it low sugar. And there were some challenges around having it be sweet enough and also like mask sort of some of this mushroom flavor effectively with low sugar. And we discovered that using like certain types of fats and really potent spice like recreates this like sweetness sensation in your mouth. So we use like really, really rich and kind of some particular coconut fats. And so oil and chips and whatnot. And then really like think super potent spices like cloves and nutmeg. And it almost recreates like it creates some sort of sort of like the science breaks down for me. But the food scientist was explaining that, that it recreates this almost like sweetness sensation in the mouth from like the fat and like the piercing flavor. That's about as much scientific knowledge as I could totally give you, but but we kind of landed on that. And so at the base of all of our granola concepts, like really is like, they're all rich in fat. We have a high fat product. It's all healthy fat. And then we use potent spice as well. Nice. Okay. So it wasn't so much a, you found some way to make mushrooms themselves taste good, like with some patent drying process or I don't know, whatever, but it was more about finding creative ways to make the whole granola, the whole formulation tastes better without a ton of sugar. Right. And I will say like, there was definitely like a good amount of process engineering or or just like process iteration that we had to go through around the mushrooms. But that was more so to ensure like active compounds post-production. So like, if the processing is too harsh, like it will essentially destroy the active medicinal compounds, which is what like you're really looking for when you consume these mushrooms. And so there definitely was processing around that specifically, but not necessarily flavor. Interesting. So do you continuously test for those active compounds? Is that part of your ongoing process? We don't test every batch. We've in the past tested and we were testing and iterating and testing until we got it right. And then when we brought it to scale, tested, and then it was like, okay, like we feel confident now. And then we tested once last year as well. So like we are not testing every single time because we feel pretty accurate about the process and like that it's within its constraints and feel like we understand some of the factors, but we'll probably continue to test like once a year, I think is, you know, we don't have a ton of budget to just be randomly testing these things, but as long as we're not seeing variants, like I don't see a whole lot of reason to test more than that. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. I know testing is getting to be a really popular thing in the food world. Most people are doing the testing more for like glyphosate or other heavy metals or something like that that might be in food. But I could also see with the functional food movement growing, I could see people being more transparent and having ongoing testing about the function of the food to prove that, you know, it is what we say it is. And maybe even I think a lot of the debate around some functional foods is how much of it your body even absorbs. It's like one thing if that packaged product has all these nutrients in it, but it's another thing if you can actually get that to be absorbed into your bloodstream to be functional, right? So I think that would be one of my predictions for the future of functional food and regenerative agriculture will be more nutrient density testing to make, and then, you know, hopefully getting some studies funded to make sure whatever you're consuming sticks with you and is absorbed. Yeah, you're right. Bioavailability is like a whole other conversation. So our mushroom mix that we use now, we use a, like a proprietary vitamin D brown button. So like you go to the store, like you buy like a brown button mushroom. It's that concept, but it, it's it's exposed to a special type of ultraviolet light and under certain conditions that enables it to basically like produce a shitload of vitamin D. And so we also test for vitamin D like post-production 
And again, like I, from what I understand about it is that it's one of the most bioavailable vitamin D sources you can consume outside of like sunlight, but of physical actual consumption where like mushroom vitamin D is way more bioavailable than plant vitamin D from what I understand. So I hear you on that. And like, we definitely kind of think about it. I think it's a challenge across the industry. Uh, Cool. So we started touching on the kind of scrappy startup entrepreneurial journey you've been on uh, with the kind of stumbling into pitching some influential people who wanted your deck and then quickly getting a logo and pitch deck together. And as your journeys unfolded, as I've been kind of hearing more and more of your story through following you on LinkedIn, I've noticed you've continued that scrappy spirit in many ways. I think I saw a Facebook ad or something that you put out about you kind of like sleeping in your backyard in a tent or something like that for the first year or something. And I know you've got your forage van where either you or one of your team members might be sleeping out of it in a Walmart parking lot or you know something like that while you're on the road talking to retailers. So of anyone I know in the CPG space, I feel like you're truly living that kind of bootstrapped, scrappy entrepreneur lifestyle. But can you talk a little bit about your journey so far and some of those defining like experiences or moments that you think are either lessons learned or just fun stories? Yeah, yeah, I definitely I think I pride myself on some of that for sure. And honestly, like, it's fun. I feel like I'm a little bit taking advantage of my age. Where like, I feel like it gets to a certain point where like, you just can't be as scrappy or not seen as like as attractive. I don't know why maybe I'm speculating. But yeah, like I think I'll have the rest of my life to live in comfort and luxury. And so why not take advantage of while I can do it otherwise right now, I suppose. But yeah, so I guess a couple like quick hitters that are claims to scrappy fame. <laughs> claims of scrappy slept, fame. Yeah. So one day I just decided that, and my room was overflowing with like finished good product, like raw ingredients. It was not good. And like a desk and I was still working my full-time job and my mental health was really plummeting. And so I, you know, I thought, and actually part of this 18 month experiment the year prior, I slept outside for a month. And so I said, you know what, fuck it, I'm moving to the backyard. And so I just like (laughs) pitched a tent one day. I still remember the day it was mid March. I think it was March 17th. And I was on a phone call for my other work and it was just so bored. And I was like, okay, I'm pitching the tent. I'm I'm sleeping outside tonight. And like, this will just be good. And then I ended up sleeping in the tent for two years (laughs) outside. I threw out the bed and transformed the bedroom into like a little office, like headquarters. We had like a little storage area and then we had desks and we got some interns from university of Washington. I still also remember the first day they showed up for like their internship, like at their like corporate job. (laughs) And I was a little nervous. And the boss rolls out of his tent. (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm like, what are they going to think when they roll up? And it's like in my old bedroom And the first day they come in and I got them these cool like 3D printed like notebooks and they each had like snacks and they they each had their own desk. It was sick. And they got there and they kind of look around and they're like, oh, so like this is a house. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, and I can park anywhere on the street. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, this is way better than our friends' internships. Like, they have to pay for parking downtown. Like, they have to like dress up. And they were both like super excited about the idea of like working here and and it was just ended up working out super awesome. They like loved and thought it was hilarious that I was in the tent. And so, yeah, it ended up being pretty ideal, but I was not planning on sleeping in the tent for two years, but transparently, like I didn't have an end goal in mind. It was like, okay, I'm sleep- I'm moving to the tent. Like, I don't know what's next, but I'm going to move to the tent because this feels like the best thing for my personal health and like the business. And so I'm going to do it. So I did that for close to two years 
I came to really enjoy it, Gage. I'll be super transparent. Some of the best sleep I've ever gotten was out there in that tent. And then after that, I, you know, we raised some funding, kind of some more legitimate funding towards the end. And then it was like, okay, we got some distribution opportunities. And it was like, okay, like this, you know, let's see what we can do, move into some retail and, and just go learn and like meet the different retailers around the country. And so I originally bought a pop top camper that was on top of my car. You know what I'm talking about? Like you like pull some string and it like pops up and it's just like on tracks on top. And I slept out of that for like a couple days and it was pretty tight. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is gonna be tight driving around the country, living, living out of this thing. But okay, like whatever. And then like a week later, his name is Nick Mendoza. Who I share an office with him downtown in Seattle he bought this Japanese import van and it looked sick and it was super affordable. And I did some research and some of them are super reliable, considered to be like super well built back in the nineties and early two thousands. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go buy one of those. And so I sold my own car to afford to buy the forage van. So I bought it with my own money. I actually personally own the forage van and I sold this rooftop pop top camper And within two weeks, I bought this Japanese import like pop top camper. So you hit a button and like the roof comes up and you can crawl up to the upper space and sleep. So I sold my car, bought that pop top camper, and then I got it wrapped in forage branding. And then I left and hit the road. And so I went from like two years in the tent, bought this van super quick. And then I didn't even have a bed set up up top when I left. And I started driving south down to California. And I had to like figure out how to like make a bed up there on the fly on the road. And then I ended up spending about a year on the road in total. So living on the road, driven around the country, was sleeping in grocery store parking lots, the whole shebang gauge. I mean, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs start their business out of a garage or a bedroom or, you know, something like that. In fact, even my agency, Modern Species, for the first two or three years, we were running it out of our apartment, like either out of a bedroom or we at some point just actually converted the living room to be the office and packed our lives into the bedrooms. But there's few people who I think take that dedication to the next level and and decide to give their entire living space to their business and opt to live outside or, you know, take the business on the road. So I think those are just amazing stories showing both your scrappiness and your commitment. And I totally agree with what you're saying that, you know, take advantage of your age while you can, because the older you get, the harder it is to sleep in strange conditions or the more obligations you have or the more stuff you own. And therefore the more you're like tied to a specific location. So I think that's smart to like build something and be scrappy while you can. And then, you know, you've got the rest of your life to increase levels of comfort as it makes sense. Yeah. I want to be like a stay-at-home dad building treehouses for my kids. You know what I mean? Like that's my future. But for now, I'm happy to live on the road and scrape by because it's all part of the fun, you know? Yeah. I don't know if he's still doing it, but Turner Wyatt, the former CEO of the Upcycled Food Association, he was running a side business called, I think it was Dirtbag Vans, (laughs) where he was literally importing Japanese like camper vans and fixing them up and selling them to people. So... (laughs) So that's a fun tie together. Yeah. Okay. I just pulled it up. Yeah. 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 He's selling Delicas, which is a super nice Japanese van. There are the Japanese van market is really interesting for people that are intrigued. The thing that scares the vast majority of people off, which is so silly, Gage, is the fact that the driving wheel is on the other side. I picked the van up and I had never driven it before. And then I lived out of it for a full year. And I'll tell you, it took me like, two and a half hours, like, or maybe like three and a half hours down to like the Oregon border to get used to it, you know? And now it's like, 
I can drive, I can drive both wheels, you know, which, which is great. <laughs> it's a life skill. Yeah, that's cool. I seem to remember Kate Fossen was recently visiting Seattle and got a ride in your van and showed some pictures of uh, the stickers on the dashboard or something. And people commented when she, she did, posted yeah. that, they're like, where's the steering wheel? Because <laughs> she was sitting on the left yeah. side. That's funny. Awesome. So one thing I found interesting just from personal experience, but also through this podcast is most entrepreneurs didn't get a degree in business, let alone a degree in entrepreneurship. They have a degree in some other thing, like it might be marketing or environmental studies or writing or you know something like that. And then they ended up becoming an entrepreneur, sometimes by choice, or maybe they had a plan to do that at some point, but often just by accident <laughs> to some degree. However, you actually got a degree in entrepreneurship, which I feel like is strangely rare for entrepreneurs. So how do you feel like that degree kind of prepared you for the journey that you've been on? And out of curiosity, do you feel like there was any parts of that education that missed the mark? Yes to both. <laughs> I think the degree was pretty easy because with the finance degree, it was like a couple additional electives. So it, that was sort of like an opt-in. And there were definitely some waste of time classes. I would say I took two things away from the degree and maybe one thing that could be useful to anybody who's, who's going to start a company. And I like kind of considered a Bible of starting a company of sorts. But the first one is in one class, they partnered an entrepreneurship student with an engineering student with a design student. And we created a product together. And that was cool. I, I will say like, that was cool. Actually, the products we created were kind of sweet. I wish I still had them. We went to the University of Minnesota and they were long sleeve t-shirts and they were actually super cozy. And the pocket was like of the state of Minnesota and it was like attached. And then there was like a little pocket and they were actually like pretty cool and super cozy as mentioned. So that was just like a good raw experience of like, this is what working with the team's like. You've like source product and like figure out cost of goods sold and like design and actually figure out how to sell it and, and whatnot. The thing, though, that I would say I took away that I still like, I would say it's a highly referenced book is the business model canvas. Have you heard of mm, this? Right. Yeah, I do. I think I have it. <laughs> yeah. So that was like a required book for one class. And I have all the books in the series now. I think it's by like Strategizer is the name of it. And I just find like the concepts in that book to be super fundamental to just like running tests and like testing and like A-B testing and figuring out like, okay, like what are we going to do to sell the product? Or like, how are we going to source the product? And just like giving a really good simple sense of like kind of some of the basic steps to starting any sort of business. It's never that easy, but I think like for somebody who like really has no clue where to start, it, it could be a good spot. Yeah. I recommend that to people all the time, but here's the pop quiz then. Did you actually fill out a business model canvas for Forge when you got started? Uh, we have one. When I first got started, I want to say I probably put together some drafts that were trash, but that's how it goes. In my task manager, I use ClickUp to manage tasks and follow up with leads. On a quarterly basis, it's linked to our business model canvas and it's to update the business model canvas. Ooh, interesting. Wait, so how does that work? So I don't know if I've used like a business model canvas software per se. I've seen the book and the worksheets that I've used. But are you saying there's like a business model canvas software that ClickUp 
connects to somehow and then as you're up yeah i I just have it in like a powerpoint file so like it's in a powerpoint file and then every quarter i'll make a copy of of the slide and then i'll just like shift it however the business has changed or like how i'm thinking about the business and it's just as a like high level blueprint of like am i thinking about everything right okay cool yeah so now the flip side of that question was what do you feel like that education was missing like where they missed the mark now that you're an actual entrepreneur do you like look back on that and say wow, they were really way off on this lesson or or this principle that they taught us. I think a lot of it is just like theoretical where, you know, this gauge, just like, it's trench warfare out here. Like, how do you, do you put somebody in a class <laughs> to teach them how to go to war? I don't think so. Like, I think you just have to go to war. <laughs> like, like that, that's sort of just what has to happen <laughs> if you really want to learn how to be good in war. Like, so I wish like, and, and I have aspirations of well, being a kindergarten teacher, but I also have aspirations of for sure teaching entrepreneurship on a university level. And I think it would be like, I would really challenge, I think it would be like a really challenging, like you're out in the streets hustling to go build something concept. And like, you know, like you, you could give, you know, the winners or something like $10,000 of your own money every single semester or something. But I like, I would love to like create, we try and recreate like just a super real setting and maybe have it be like a, an upper level entrepreneurship class where it's like people are really serious. I think the University of Washington, I feel like has a really good program. Like I hear about tons of companies that come out of that program and like the students just continue running the companies for real, like after school, which is awesome. That, that's a successful program. Yeah, there's some definitely good business schools around the country and I found they're all different too. Like I've heard some schools still teach the way business was run 50 years ago and like the 10 P's or 12 P's or whatever, like price placement, you know, product promote, like all that kind of stuff. And then there are some schools who are like four P's. There you go. (laughs) Well, I've heard some people extend it into others. And then there's Seth Godin has his own, like re the modern P's that Uh, he switches it to. And anyway, it's all over the place, but some schools are like teaching the new way and being experimental. Some are teaching the, like the tried and true principles and so on and so forth. So I, I feel like if you're interested in business, you should like just go find the school that has the flavor of the style that you're looking for. Otherwise, to your point, what I hear from a lot of MBA graduates is they say, if you really want to learn how to build a business, just go build a business. <laughs> like the MBAs are often great for networking and probably a requirement if you're trying to rise up the corporate ladders in a c- corporate environment. But if you're just trying to be an entrepreneur, just go get started and you'll learn a lot, like you said, in the trenches. Yeah, take the money and go do there. I think another really good book for people who are thinking about it. Are you familiar with Alex Ramosi? Uh, I'm not sure. He wrote a book called $100 Million Offers. I just think he has some good frameworks in there thinking about like, is this a good idea to start a business on or not? Just some fundamental questions to like get you started. That's a pretty easy read. But yeah, go start the business. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I've always like I thought about getting a dual MBA plus design degree or not MBA, a dual business and design degree when I was in school, but the business school wouldn't let me do it at the time. They said just come back and do another degree afterwards. So I've always thought about it, but then I've never had a good enough excuse because I just constantly absorb business books or I go through like incubator programs like 10,000 small businesses and I just like learn that way by either doing or being part of communities or, you know, having chats with other business owners. But, you know, I can't say that I've built the perfect business, but here we are 14 years later and still kind of thriving. So 
I must have done a few things right along the way, <laughs> but but I feel like part of the joy and burden of running a business is that it's a constant learning game, right? Even if you got a degree from the best business school in the world, you're not going to know this specific product category. You're not going to know this current marketplace. You're not going to know how to get through a pandemic like we just went through. Like All those things can't really be taught, right? You got to just be willing to to hustle and learn in the moment, right? To be able to pivot, take whatever data is coming in and make some decisions, move forward, try it, see if it works. If it doesn't, <laughs> try something else and move forward again. Totally. Yeah, a thousand percent. That's funny you say that because if I were to go back to school, I think I would go back in a design capacity. Uh, that's interesting, which I have seen is more common. Both design schools have started teaching more business and business schools have started teaching more design. Like in my personal opinion, there's a handful of degrees that go well together. And I think business, psychology, and design all kind of coexist so nicely that it would be amazing to just get like a joint degree in those three things. But you could also weave in all sorts of other things. Like if you want to do sustainability, like environmental science or something could be in there too, or if you're in food, nutrition, et cetera. Totally. Yeah, I like that though. Uh, So we could geek out on all the business stuff forever, I'm sure. But as we start wrapping up, one of the other things I wanted to touch on, because I think it's unique about your interest and background is that you're also a psilocybin peer supporter, which is starting to get more traction. I even saw that Dr. Bronner's started covering employee mental health care through psilocybin treatments. And of course, Michael Pollan's book on how to change your mind and other things like that have come out and started making psychedelics more mainstream again, like bringing it back into our culture is not something we need to be afraid of. So I love that you're a peer supporter and helping people go through their journeys. But can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Like, what does it mean to be a peer supporter? Yeah, yeah. So I came in touch with a friend of mine named uh, Saad. And he started a company called Silo Health. So Saad, he is a pharmacist, and he's also pretty active in the psychedelic community. And he started Silo Health to basically create like a an authority that and really a certifying body to create like a certification that people that anybody can go through to help others, you know, go through these psychedelic trips. And the idea is to help democratize these sort of medicines. So, you know, right now it's like you could go through a medicinal trip legally, but you go through with like a psychiatrist. There's only so many psychiatrists, it's really expensive. And so they built this really cool, robust program where like they certify psilocybin peer supporters. And so he's a friend, I'm super passionate about it. And so I joined one of the first cohorts and like went through the certification program. It was really cool, super robust. Like they give background, they give history, they give the scientific processes, you know, coping, like things that can go wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was really great. I've always believed in some of the medicinal powers of psychedelics. And so we went through that program and then have had, then have since helped folks who have been interested in using psychedelics for medicinal purposes. So just last year, there was kind of one of the first major clinical studies was released, you know, clinically showing that psilocybin can effectively reduce depression and anxiety, which is awesome. Like, it's really quite cool. And I think a lot more people are starting to become open-minded to that idea. And so, you know, what I've really focused or what I've kind of taken from the program and and where I've kind of really focused and where I think there is kind of a larger group to be helped and and kind of to help take the first step is actually in more of a microdosing program. So I have some like just some free programs that I've put together through the certifying program where it's like, hey, if you're interested 
and not going through like a major psychedelic trip, right? That could be a huge step forward for a lot of people. You know, I'm looking at like people like my mom or dad, but are curious in these medicines and want to experiment with them in, in a way where like, you're not going to get super high, like, you know, during any day and you can kind of continue your normal life and you don't have to go to a retreat center or kind of helping people like think through like, okay, like what could a microdose regimen look like and how could this be helpful? So that's kind of where like on a more personal basis, right? Like we don't use psychedelic mushrooms in any of our products. That is where I kind of focus my time and kind of been working with people to help them kind of get involved and start using these substances to really address some like pretty fundamental mental illnesses or sort of issues. Yeah, that's great. The science was looking very promising back in the 60s. And then, you know, the culture of the time ended up pushing against it for various reasons. And now it's coming back in a stronger way around the world with people getting back into that research and seeing all the benefits of it. So I think it's great, not only that more funding and money is going into the research, but people are more open to kind of be talking about this again, and that there are supporters and therapists out there to help people go through a journey because, you know, they always say it's, what is it, a setting? Like it's the context of how you do it can really influence the results of the process, right? So if you're trying to do it on your own and you don't know what you're doing and you're scared and you don't set up the right environment, it can just make things bad or not a great experience. And then that'll taint how that person feels about it. But if you have someone really helping you through it, you can have better results through the process and therefore get more benefits. So so I appreciate that you're doing that and helping folks through that journey. And that's usually a telltale sign. It's like you should not be experimenting if you are afraid. Like you need to get over that fear before you start down this path. And that is like a step for people. And I think that's just something that the whole mindset thing isn't super well understood because there aren't really any other substances that are highly impacted by mindset. Obviously, that's not a perfect statement, but just generally speaking, mindset has a much bigger effect on your experience with psychedelics than it does other substances. Awesome. Well, I know that we need to wrap up here. So to do so, I'm super curious as Mr. Noggin Nutrition himself, (laughs) I'm curious to know what you think the future of functional food looks like. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's going to become, you know, more widespread and and I think available. I also think the word functional will be pretty broad in scope. So functional food could include added vitamins or it could include things such as medicinal mushrooms. Where today I, you know, I feel like things that are functional are more like have CBD in them or have some of these mushrooms in them. So I just think the idea of leveraging natural remedies and other substances in things that we already consume is is just going to become mainstream. So to me, that's sort of what I feel. I, I really like your take on some of like the more of the legislation and policies around testing and transparency. I think that will as well be a sort of a, a wave that, that will be much needed. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think you're already seeing like a large player moving in that direction. I, I think Olipop, like I would consider them a functional beverage company. And so it's really cool to see what they're doing and kind of leading the way in in my eyes. That's cool. Yeah. One thing I was just thinking of is originally all food was probably functional, right? And then we started overly processing stuff and making it dysfunctional or, or damaging to our health. So as I was just thinking about the future of functional food, it occurred to me that what would be a really great outcome is that all food goes back to being functional But like you said, there's so many different definitions of functional. We're just like on the early days of that right now, but I'm looking forward to seeing it expand. Well, I know we're wrapping, but I know like I'm sure you just saw a bunch of like the erythritol news kind of in circulating. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's sad, but yeah, hopefully we can get substances like that out of here. Totally. I think we just need functional food that's real natural food, right? It doesn't have to be made in a lab or it doesn't have to be an alternate to something else. It can just be the best quality version of that thing. But anyway, we'll wrap up here. So I appreciate you taking some time out of your scrappy bootstrapped entrepreneur lifestyle to share some of your story with us. And I appreciate that you are out there focusing on the things that matter, like making people healthier and bringing more happiness and joy into the world with your brand as well, which we didn't get a chance to dig into some of the projects you're going through with games, but maybe on the next time we have you on. So thanks for doing all that you're doing. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Parker or his company, visit forage.co. That's F-O-R-I-J dot C-O. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. And of course, if you work in the industry, come join our community at community.evolvecpg.com and we'll go further, faster, together.